You're listening to The Chain, a science podcast where we bring what is new in biologics and protein engineering to the community of scientists working in this field. We discuss the latest developments with leaders who are on the front lines of cutting edge research. Welcome back to The Chain. I'm your host, Rory McCann. Today, we bring you another conversation from Science Commune. Science Commune is a segment of The Chain that goes beyond the science and explores the people making discoveries. We discuss their career paths, passions, and the people who inspired them along the way. Join Dr. Daniel Chen as he speaks with Dr. Bruce Keat, who is the Chief Scientific Officer at IGM Biosciences, about connections between engineers, biologists, artists, and the inspiration that sparks innovation. You are sitting on your couch watching a movie. It's about a man and a woman who are separated in time and are struggling to reunite. There's a rudimentary time machine, there are motorcycles, and a California coastline. There are shady characters in tan overcoats chasing them. And just when it looks like they're about to have found a wormhole in time to reunite through, you suddenly jump up out of your chair. You realize you've just had an idea about how to solve a problem you've been desperately trying to solve in the lab. You scramble to find a notebook to jot down some notes in case the idea is fleeting. This is an aha moment. But where did this idea come from? Is this how innovation really happens? This is Science Commune, and I'm Daniel Chen. Today, I'm joined by Bruce Kite, Chief Science Officer at IGM Biosciences. Bruce, it's been great getting to interact with you the last year plus. But how did you actually become a scientist? I have been interested in science since the early days of grade school and couldn't get enough of it. In fact, I set up a chemistry lab in the basement of our house in Minnesota and started mixing things together to see if I could make something really remarkable, almost modern-day alchemy. I didn't find anything new there, but I had a lot of fun mixing things and making bubbling reactions, and I just almost knew that I wanted to be a chemist or a biochemist. And then later on, I turned to the field of understanding biological chemistry and how does life work. And that has been the key to it all, but it comes back from the point of view of being a chemist. How do you alter things at a molecular level. And so what, what did you try to solve? Well, I think the one unifying thing in my career is basically trying to figure out how things work at the really small scale. How do proteins uh, get to know each other? How do they touch and feel? And how do they work together? Uh, I think of proteins as like individuals in a village. You know, there's, there are doctors and bakers and uh, highway patrolmen, but the same people are also fathers and mothers and kids and teachers. We all play different roles, and so do proteins. And so I think about them deeply, as if I could imagine them in three dimensions. And that's really been an advantage, uh, I think, in my career, is I think about these things differently than some of my colleagues. And it is true. I mean, proteins do essentially seem to be the fundamental building block of life as we know it, at least on this planet. But how did you end up becoming so fascinated with proteins? Yeah, um, it's funny that you mentioned they are the fundamental building block. I mean, much of the credit in this day and age goes to DNA. 
and then RNA, the four building blocks, the bases of nucleic acids. It's almost like proteins get no respect in modern biotech, but they are really what do the heavy lifting. The information to make a protein is written in DNA, but the real work is done by proteins. And so I love the little machines that they are, and I like to figure out how they work. And, and that's been a, a consistent theme. I'm curious about many things. How do things function? What is the history of a society? How do people evolve? Where did we come from? What is life? In order to really understand something, I want to take it to the smallest level. I think I can finally understand what's going on when we get to that sub-microscopic level. So what is it about proteins that make them essentially the workhorse and the foundation and the walls of organisms on Earth? There is something fascinating about proteins. There are roughly 20 amino acids, and they can fit together in astronomically large numbers and variations. And contained within the protein sequence is the information to fold up in three dimensions, and we still don't understand how that works. We're getting better uh, through trial and error, we, the greater scientific community. How do they fold? Uh, we're, we're studying it through protein engineering, and, 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 and it really does feel like we're uh, at a very early level of understanding, such that we can break things, but it's very hard to make them. And by trial and error, we are getting proteins to do new things and understanding how they do fold up. And there's a unique three-dimensional structure to uh, folded proteins that, uh, you know, it makes sense, but we're just sort of grabbing it in the dark with mittens on, and we're learning how it works. So if I understand it right, you were the first employee at IGM Biosciences, and you've tackled problems that others have struggled with, the ability to synthesize IgM antibodies and even to engineer them to change their properties. How did that happen? Right. I, I um, was approached by a very small team of, of, of two or three um, uh, venture capitalists in the, in the Bay Area, and he had some significant funding by a, um, a Danish industrial concern and a professor at Stanford, and they had the notion that let's take a different approach in biotechnology. Where everybody else is working with immunoglobulin G, let's go back and try immunoglobulin M, IgM. And that's a much larger protein. It's five times larger, but could it be done? And many have tried, and nobody has really succeeded at making IgM into a therapeutic drug where there's you know, upwards of 80 approved IgG-type antibodies. So is there an opportunity to do something really challenging and make a big difference with this large macromolecule? So I took that on as a challenge. I thought, okay, let's, let's try doing something differently. Well, it sounds like a hard problem, and obviously it's it's not easy to take on challenges where others have tried and not succeeded. Were there particular things along the way to, to being able to achieve the goals of the group that you think um, 
ultimately led to the successful ability to manufacture and engineer these molecules? Yes, there were a number of things that led to our success. I mentioned a steady bit of funding that allowed us to tinker for half a dozen years and being somewhat immune to year-over-year, quarter-to-quarter needs and requirements that small companies often face. We also had um, what I like to call the burn-the-boats moment, where we were going to do this, and we weren't going to take the easy way out. I mean, if you're faced with a choice of an easy road and a hard road, and the hard road gets difficult, you have the choice of falling back to the easy road. We didn't have that option. We were going to do IgM or nothing. And so I took that on seriously, and the first thing to do is to get good at making them, and the second was really get good at engineering them, and to take IgM into places that others hadn't done before. Uh, I think most people had kind of you know, stopped in the road, gone off the road, but didn't push on. And we did, both getting good at making them, engineering them, and then doing things with an IgM that had never been done before, that hadn't been conceived of. And that's what really attracted me to this opportunity. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Chain and wanted to let you know about one of my favorite events coming this spring. The 16th annual PEGS conference is taking place May 4th through the 8th in Boston, Massachusetts. PEGS brings together a wide range of programs and topics from diverse perspectives that includes a mixture of industry and academic presentations, all centered around innovation, problem solving, and sharing ideas. You can save $100 on registration with the code POD100. That's P-O-D-100. Head over to P-E-G sumit.com to learn more about PEGS, the Essential Protein Engineering and Cell Therapy Summit. And it's interesting, there must have been so many aha moments along that journey. Is there one that you in particular remember and can describe? Sure, sure. For those who, who know the field, or even those that don't, you can imagine an IgM as a bit of a flower with five petals. And at the middle of the flower, I guess that's where the stamen is, you have a unique structure that here you have this large macromolecule that can bind just like a hand. It can bind with five, or in this case, 10 fingers to something bad, like a tumor cell. But we wanted to make it bispecific. We wanted to make it be able to bind two different, different things. Could we bind both a tumor and a T cell to bring the T cell to the tumor to get your, the patient's own white cells to kill the, the, the lethal tumor cells. It was a difficult problem. I mean, that was what was exciting me is I had five or 10 different binding sites to play with. Should I put five against one target and five against the other? Well, that would be a very bad idea because it's an, a, a gross irritant to the human immune system and might cause a lot of trouble to a patient to have such an antibody. So the challenge was could we put one binding site to a T cell amidst nine or ten binding sites to the tumor? We struggled with this for some weeks or months of how are we going to do this? Is there even a possible way of juggling the genes to get the right ratio? And it just hit me one day, I wonder, there's a way to do this. And it hadn't occurred to anybody, but the IgM has three genes. There's 10 heavy chains, 10 light chains, 
and one J chain, the joining chain, the one chain that holds the rest of them together, as if it's the ring that binds the others in the Tolkien's trilogy. We were focused on that one ring. Nobody had really given it much consideration. It's a little protein hiding at the center of the head of the flower. We wanted to attach an extra binding site to it. I thought, hmm, I wonder if this could be done. This could solve our problem. We could get a 10 to 1 ratio. Oh my goodness, this might work. Uh, oh, that's such a simple concept. Somebody must have thought of this. Like, well, actually, no. No one had ever considered that. Well, it must not be possible. Well, it's very crowded down in there at the center of the flower. Could we put anything else in there? I mean, as soon as I thought of the idea, I had thought of three reasons why it wouldn't work. But it turned out that it did work. So there was an aha moment that, that turned out to have some um, depth to it, some, some rightness it, it, that it works. So it sounds like in that moment you solved or proceeded to solve both a very challenging technical problem as well as a major conceptual advance in terms of changing the ratio of binding sites when you're engaging two different interacting cells. So those types of moments, your thoughts on where they come from, what gives you inspiration <laughs> when you're thinking about things that aren't just linear in their thinking path? Yeah, yeah, many people have written about this sort of thing that how do, ideas come about, what is really creative, and I'm not sure. I've given it some thought. I think it's almost like many different things have to come in. A person has inputs from many different areas, and then suddenly a link between two things can occur that either other people don't have the different points of view, or they don't make the link, but once you have the data and you make the link, it's easy. And so it can be just having exposure to lots of bits of detailed facts, and then maybe being lucky enough, orthogonal or different, thinking differently, that you make the link that hadn't occurred. And, and part of it's just you know really struggling over something and, and, and revolving it from looking at it from different points of view and then breaking the mold. So Bruce, these ideas that you come up with, do they ever come to you in a particular setting? Do you get your ideas, I don't know, in the shower or reading a book or playing an instrument? No, I don't think they, they come at any particular time. To me, it's usually a visual, three-dimensional concept, kind of a thinking about it, not doing anything else, but staring into, you know, into space sort of thing. and then. In my mind, I'm conjuring up, in this case, little 3D images of what might be going on and what you could do. It's interesting. You know, amongst the many biologists I know, I feel like I know more musicians amongst the biology crowd than any other artistic form. And I've always wondered why that might be. But it sounds like, from you, you've actually had more of a predilection towards a different type of art. Right. I'm much more a visual arts person. I very much respond to visual input rather than the, the usual listening or, or, or reading. I, I, imagery is very strong for me. And I like to draw and paint. And 
and I can be good at it if I were to uh, return to that uh, hobby. But the visual arts are different than, say, music, in that in, in order to be a, a painter or a draftsperson, you have to have very good sight, perception, memory, at least enough to transfer it to draw it. You have to be able to take what you see, put it in your head, turn around and look at a blank piece of paper and reproduce it. So all of those things come together in a certain kind of uh, memory, knowledge, what have you. But part of it is you don't really attach a lot of significance to anything. You see it all at once. Whereas I think music and other, I think of more logical, linear types of thinking, you put tremendous emphasis and discipline into the order of everything. Whereas a visual artist can look at it all at once. And then, you know, some people do that. They will paint at different spots around a painting rather than working on the head and then proceeding to the neck and so forth. It's a different kind of way of looking at things that I think the visual artist has. It's interesting. You're right. I've never thought of the difference between physical arts and painting and music that way, but it's almost like there's no x-axis or time axis. Right. I think that's true. I think that it's really taking time out of the equation. Everything is x, y, and z. It's all in either 2 or 3D space. But yes, and of course, time can factor in that. You can then create movies by you know, altering the images. But it starts with that visual input. So Bruce, what do you see as the next big fundamental challenge and breakthrough that we can attempt to achieve with our understanding of biology and novel approaches with antibody engineering. Right, so how can we take what we've learned today and move it to the next step? And so we've uh, focusing on cancer and treating cancer with the magic bullets, the, the, the antibodies that are now very effective. Can we make them better? So the current wave is bispecific antibodies. I think the next wave could be building on that. Can we make little nanomachines that can be given to a patient and do multiple events, can bind, block, they can be transported uh, more easily into the tumor, maybe have multiple functions once they get there. So I think the next challenge will be building multivalent, multispecific, multifunctional antibodies for treatment of cancer. Well, that sounds like that would be quite the achievement. Thank you very much, Bruce. Thank you for joining us on The Chain. Tune in next time for more conversations about science, research, and exploring the world of protein engineering.